I went on a hike today and got very lost. Yeah, where was <laughs> I? Like how? <laughs> so the it's like in this park um, where there's a lot of different trails that intersect, right? And I w- I like didn't have a map. I had a cell phone app. So as soon as you're out of range of cell phone towers, that becomes pretty much useless because you can't locate yourself on the map easily, especially if there are a lot of different trails around. So I ended up just like in a place I didn't really know where I was. There was a four-way intersection and I just picked one at random, not at random exactly, but definitely a feeling of like, all of these will get me somewhere. And then I ended up in a place I didn't want to be. (laughs) Oh no. It was very stressful and I was very hungry because it was like, it mm-hmm. turned out to be like much longer than I expected. So I was just like, I want McDonald's fries so bad. <laughs> oh man, that's powerfully hungry. <laughs> I never want McDonald's fries. I mostly just wanted like grease and salt probably. Yeah. And that was what my brain oh, has latched like, on to. Specifically McDonald's fries. I want other fries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, were were you like ever sick because of mcdonald's fries like no but in my mind they just are like pale and sickly you know mm, like compared to burger king's fries which are crispy or brahms fries which are crinkly or sonic's fries mm, which are bad they're the same (laughs) as mcdonald's fries (laughs) i will say that the fries i finally got a hold of were kind of sickly and pale, mm-hmm. but they sure did taste good because they mostly taste nice. good like salt. <laughs> good. Nice, nice. That was all man. I needed. Oh, man. I did not uh, think ahead about Thanksgiving stories. <laughs> <laughs> I did forget it was Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. We should warn our listener that they're in for a Thanksgiving good time. <laughs> yes, you are sort of. uh uh possibly a halfway thanksgiving good time both of my stories are also questionably related to thanksgiving but i can spin them thanksgiving (laughs) Uh uh-huh for a while i had one like i was looking at uh analysis thing from the pudding about like the types of people they include in their crossword clues which i was really interested in because i do the crossword every day um (laughs) brag <laughs> but, <laughs> but you do like they clue the same people over and over and the pudding had this really cool article about it and I was trying to be like well my mom does crosswords and Thanksgiving is about family <laughs> <laughs> I gave up well what stories did you do instead for this buff talk science Thanksgiving extravaganza okay <laughs> for so which I am I'm, Allison oh yes and I'm Grayson and this is buff talk science <laughs> I guess about that. science from see you Boulder and beyond. Did you? Okay, cool, cool. Sorry. <laughs> um, well, I'm talking about some rats that are poisonous. Okay. <laughs> For I'll Thanksgiving. Tell you why it's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving? Sorry. <laughs> Thanksgiving when we get there. And then I'm doing another story about. Uh, NASA hiccup that happened on Thanksgiving in Ooh. 1991. So, yeah, I'm gonna talk about the um Svalbard seed bank for like you know our upcoming 
grain fest, which is nice. what I've termed Thanksgiving specifically so that I can include this oh. story. <laughs> I was like, who's our, like, I'm not having a grain fest. <laughs> I'm having a grain fest. I wish I only nice. eat grains because my family doesn't really do vegetarian Thanksgiving, which is fair. <laughs> so I only eat grains. <laughs> nice. Exciting. That's a joke but it will be great oh. heavy. Anyway, my second story is about <laughs> football because um, people insist on making Thanksgiving about football. So <laughs> very nice. Okay. What's, who should start? I can start. Okay. Perfect. Okay. What are you so, talking about? <laughs> I'm going to talk about the Svalbard Seed Vault because I do feel like, you know, Thanksgiving is a time of sharing um, and of food, obviously. Um, So this is a story about sharing and sort of down the line about food. Okay. (laughs) Um, So this is a story I read about in Wired. Um, The author of the article that I found Uh, Matt Simon, he's a science journalist at Wired, and the article that he wrote is called These Rare Seeds Escaped Syria's War to Help Feed the World. So, yeah, so this is a story about some plant biologists who were working in Syria at a place called... Called no, No. (laughs) at a place called the (laughs) Svalbard in Syria. You've heard of it, (laughs) you know. Yeah, (laughs) Um, this is a place called the International Center for Agricultural Research in Dry Areas, um, or ICARTA for short. So, this is a research institute in Syria. Um, They do a lot of research into plants. Um, for example, um, breeding drought-resistant plants or drought-tolerant plants and um, breeding plants that have other kinds of advantages in our changing world. Um, but as I'm sure most people remember, in 2011, in 2011 um, there was a lot of unrest in Syria, and uh, Syria um, pretty quickly devolved into a civil war. Um, and that hasn't really died down. But one of the consequences of the Syrian civil war is that ICARTA had to shut down. In 2014, they completely closed shop um, and abandoned their facility. There weren't that many people working there when they closed shop, but they all had to abandon it completely. Um, So that's very sad. And it means a lot of wasted research and um, a lot of unfinished projects. So one of the things that they did before they left is a lot of plant researchers sent their samples, the plants that they were growing, or specifically the seeds from the plants that they were growing. They sent them off to the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. So um, I'm pretty sure... Do we talk about the Svalbard Seed Vault before? I feel like we have, I but I can't we remember have. why. <laughs> we have talked about it. Uh-huh. I think it was on the podcast. Okay. Because <laughs> I didn't really know what else it would have come up. Right. I was like, I know about the Svalbard Seed Vault, so we must have talked about it on the on the podcast because I yeah. don't know why else I would know about it. I'm pretty sure <laughs> it was one of your stories too, but we'd have to go back in. Oh, uh, I was like, but definitely wasn't one of my stories. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it seems like a you story, but I'm not sure why. 
well, anyway, the uh, so a seed vault is a location where um, scientists can submit seeds um, that they're using for research and that they want to be able to retrieve in the future if necessary. So these are typically like storage facilities that are kept at very, very controlled levels of temperature and oxygen so that um, seeds will the the maturity of seed growth will be delayed, like almost stopped completely. Um, and then when you want a seed from a vault, you can request it, take it out and start growing it again, um, even if it's many, many years old, um, probably hundreds of years old. And there are actually a lot of these. There are like 1300 seed vaults all over the world, but there are some um, like important ones. Um, so Svalbard is, or this... Um, Svalbard Global Seed Vault is one of the most famous ones because it's incredibly carefully designed to be resistant to nuclear war or other types of global war. Nice. We have talked about this. (laughs) I'm pretty sure we have. (laughs) But it's like built into a sandstone mountain. So it's like a tunnel that just goes into a sandstone mountain on the island of... Spitsbergen in Norway, (laughs) Um, which is an Arctic island. Um, So it's very, very cold. And the temperatures at at which seeds are stored in this facility are uh, minus 18 degrees uh, Celsius. And the oxygen levels are kept very, very low. So this is a really cool facility. Um, It stores many, many millions of seeds um, from many different kinds of species. And the way that uh, people refer to these stored species are accessions. So every organism is giving an accession number. So you store your seeds under an accession number. That's a particular type of, uh, it's a number that like identifies which plant it is and what strain of plant what other kinds of things have accession numbers? Because I feel like I've had to deal with... I've... Well, genes, of course. Oh, um. yes. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I feel like I have to deal with this very intimately in my work somehow. <laughs> but also books have accession numbers, right? Or like archival records. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong about that because I've never really dealt with archival records, but I'm pretty sure this is like a very common thing in the museum field. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So it's a it's quite the undertaking to store seeds in a seed vault, but it means that they're available for a very, very long time and that they're very well protected and you can um, you can access them again at a later date. So the researchers working at ICARDA in Syria had deposited one hundred and sixteen thousand accession numbers worth of samples. And each accession number has, you know, whatever, thousands of seeds. I'm not sure exactly how many seeds you store, but, um, but quite a lot. And, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that there is a seed vault in Fort Collins, which I didn't know. That's like, you know, an hour up the road from us. So (laughs) I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. So sorry for that little, uh, that little tangent, but yeah, basically the, the researchers at ICARTA, before they had to abandon their facility, they shipped a lot of samples to this fall barred seed vault. Um, for safekeeping. And then in 2015, um, the civil war in Syria had not died down. However, 
the researchers from ICARTA had mostly moved to new locations, including a location in Morocco and and a location in Lebanon. And they decided to try and um, get some samples back from Svalbard so that they could start growing them again and start redistributing the seeds um, and keep working on the research that they had started in Syria. And when they did that, when they requested seeds from Svalbard, they became the very first people, the very first depositors to make a withdrawal from from Svalbard, (laughs) which I just think is very cool. Because I Thanks. think like why hadn't anybody done it before? I guess because they like it's not it's supposed to be long term seed storage. Exactly. Yeah. The kind of the purpose of Svalbard is to be a very long term storage of seeds you want long, long in the future. And there are other seed vaults, right? There are other places where people have stored and then withdrawn seeds from. Um, but Svalbard is is very special. It's very well protected. It's incredibly well designed and hard to access. Um and so both the depositing, but also with the withdrawal is, is like an undertaking. Um, so the researchers that went through this process, both of depositing the seeds and then withdrawing the seeds, actually wrote a paper that they published in uh, Nature Plants very recently this year. And it's I called... Love Nature Plants is the name of a journal. <laughs> no, it's just kind of silly. <laughs> Um, Okay, so this paper is called Safeguarding a Global Seed Heritage from Syria to Svalbard. And the authors are um, Ola Westengen, Charlotte Lusty, Marani Yazbek, Ahmed Omri, and Osmund Ozdel. And they write about the process of depositing, why they deposited, you know, the the Syrian civil war. And then they talk about um, taking these seeds back out and the process of growing plants Um, from the seeds they deposited. So they managed to uh, regrow the plants from 100,000 accessions. Um, And that was from only 300 seeds per sample, per accession number. And that's kind of cool because there's a lot of things that could go wrong when you grow your first crop of seeds, right? If you go through all the trouble Mm -hmm. of withdrawing seeds from a very... uh, fortified seed vault, then you really have to hope that your seeds grow into plants that you don't have like weird weather that year and wipe out your whole crop Mm -hmm. or that like animals get into the the areas that you're growing these plants. (laughs) All of these things have to go right. (laughs) Um, And luckily they were able to regrow plants from 100,000 accession numbers. So that's really good. Um, And the very special thing about Icarta and therefore about the plants they're growing is that a lot of these plants are really, really useful for scientific research as we go into a world changed by climate change. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the plants that Icarta was especially interested in breeding are drought resistant or plants that are resistant to a, a, uh, a, a disease that affects wheat called, um, stem rust. Stem rust is like originated in Africa and is like really devastating wheat crops all over the world. And Icarta has a couple strains of wheat that are more resistant to stem rust. So the fact that they were able to like draw those plants out, grow them up and then take seeds for dispersal to other places is really good. Um, And then the like the, the part that really ties this back to Thanksgiving is of course the idea of like, you know, 
taking plants and sharing them with other people. So I liked the story because it does involve food, you know, um, they're like growing this grain so they can, they can, they can provide farmers with seeds that will grow better and, um, provide crops for the world, but also, um, they're able to, uh, take these seeds that are, have been in development that have been, um, bred to be better in some ways and sharing them with other people all over the world. So it feels very Thanksgiving-y. <laughs> nice. It does. I would like to look at it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it looks so cool. Wait, can I screen share Svalbard yeah. to you? Um, yes, please. You have probably actually seen it on account of us clearly having done this before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... um. This is the seed vault, this picture. Oh, nice. I, I, I have not seen that. I like it, though. It's Wait, so, so cool. that goes into Look the tunnel. Sculpture. Yeah, so this is the tunnel that goes into the mountain. Um, and look at this, like, cool art piece that they have. I like it. Yeah. The whole thing Ugh, is I wish pretty. I could go there. Speaking of good science stories that I'm not wasting on regular conversation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yes, tell me. I... I okay. Here's something about Thanksgiving. Okay, you know how it's rooted Rats. in the traditional idea of the American nuclear family. Something yeah. that both involves a lot of monogamy and can be toxic. Two traits yeah. shared by these rats. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that was not a great. Uh, intro. That's a stretch, but, but that's I'm curious. What I'm doing here. <laughs> okay. There are some rats. There are lots of rats, but these okay. specific rats are very cute little buddies. Um, okay. Called the African crested rat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so last week on November nineteenth, a paper came out about African crested rats. Um, so this paper is by Sarah B. Weinstein um, at all. Uh, and it's in the Journal of Mammal- Mammalogy. Mammalogy. Mammalogy, I would say. Mammalogy. <laughs> um, I'd say that's incorrect. <laughs> Mammalogy. Based on sound. <laughs> what about pedagogy? Hmm. Um, anyway. <laughs> you mean pedagogy? No, <laughs> I don't. Um, but. These rats are poisonous to things that eat them. Okay. Or touch them. Um, They (laughs) (laughs) are covered in cardinalids, um, which are the kind of toxins that monarch monarch butterflies have a lot of these toxins uh, because they eat a lot of milkweed. Yeah, you know how they eat milkweed when they're caterpillars so that nobody will eat them when they're butterflies? Yeah, but it's just weird to me that monarch butterflies and rats share the same toxins. Yeah, but the thing is, they don't really share them. So the monarchs get them from eating milkweed, and Uh these rats were hypothesized to get them from arrow trees. Um, They were, it's thought, like in 2011, somebody observed a rat, um, an African crested rat, like chewing on an arrow tree and then licking Mm -hmm. itself. And so there was only that like in of one situation, but that's how these rats were thought to get their poisonous fur. Um, okay. 
yeah. And arrow trees, the reason they're called that is because like they, if you make poison tipped arrows, people just make them using these trees basically. Mm. Um, cool. I like but, how you switched halfway in that sentence between if you make arrow t- poisonous arrows, then people use trees. It's like, you know, if you make them, <laughs> other people are doing it this way. I think I try to drop subtle hints that I don't think your poison tipped arrow making uh, got it. that state of the art. <laughs> I've just been <laughs> using like, cyanide. Like, people do it like this and they seem pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, the point is, so there, it's not really like they're sharing the poison They're, I guess, sharing an immunity to this poison, right? Because both of them can eat it and incorporate it into their selves, um, Mm -hmm. without dying. Um, and the poison, the cardinalides that, um, the African crested rats use are like so potent that a couple of milligrams of them can kill a person. And also they can like kill elephants who don't eat the rats, but that's just what I read an article by Lisa Potter, um, in the university of Utah communications, um, because this paper came out of the university of Utah, the Smithsonian conservation uh, biology Institute and the national museums, um, of Kenya. So this article by Lisa Potter at the university of Utah, um, says it can hurt elephants, but I don't know why they'd want to, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, but they're very cute. They look like little rabbits. Um, they also kind of look like little porcupines. Uh, They are like (laughs) black and white. I'll show you them. Ooh, cute. Yeah, oh, right? So and they do, they look like porcupines. They fluff up their crest when they're mad. Um, wow, I really recommend our listener looks up these rats because they are adorable. They're very cute. I like them. But yes, so this group set out to kind of confirm this observation about how these rats get poisonous. They wanted to observe a bunch of them and see if they were all chewing up arrow trees and licking themselves or what. And so they set up these cameras, basically night cameras to try to look at them. Um, And they didn't see any because they're just kind of rare. Like apparently there used to be a lot of them and they used to show up as like roadkill in Nairobi um, Uh a lot. And now they're pretty sparse, Um, although they're not listed as endangered. They're listed as IUCNs. Like as one of the species of least concern, <laughs> um, I'm concerned about them. That's it. But anyway, so the point is they didn't see any with these cameras. So they started talking to like rangers. Um, so I think I can't exactly tell who all did field work or like anyway. So Sarah Weinstein, the first author on this paper. And Katrina Nyawira Malanga, uh, the second author on this paper, both like talked to rangers and just like people who might have seen any of these rats and basically could not find any. Um, So they set up traps that had really pungent smelling foods in them, like fish or vanilla. They they will come if there's really strong smelling food. (laughs) They did trap initially one rat and they were like, nice. And then a couple of days later, they caught a rat in the same trap and like tossed it in the cage with the other rat. Uh-huh. And they started snuggling and purring and grooming each other. Um, and so because they like determined that like one of them was a male and one of them was a female, they were caught in the same trap in the like same location, like a couple of nights after each other. 
And they were like, ah, are these are these rats in love? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> um, which was not what they were studying, right? Like uh, they wanted to see about the arrow uh tree and how the rats got poisonous, but Basically, they observed this, what seemed to be like a pair bond, um, um, uh-huh. which happened in, I don't know, like humans form pair bonds where we intermonogamous relationships and try to stay in them for a long time as a general species wide tendency, not it doesn't apply to everyone. Um, and so they seemed to be doing that. Um, and so basically what um, these scientists proceeded to do was... They trapped 25 of these um, rats and kind of checked them out and were like, nice, okay. So they offered them arrow tree to see if they would like chew it and lick themselves. And they didn't all do that every time they were offered the arrow tree, but 10 of them did it at least once. So it supports the fact that this is at least one way that they get their nice poisonous fur. Um, But they kept 10 of them And they built them a nice little habitat in an abandoned cow shed nearby Uh (laughs) instead of a bunch of cameras in the habitat and watched the rats for like a cumulative 1,000 hours. Cumulative as in like they watched all the like they watched every rat. Like if they had 10 rats, then they watched every rat 100 hours. This says they documented nearly a thousand hours of rat behavior. So just added the cumulative in. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they looked at the rats and they mapped what they were up to most of the time, or I mean, they documented it and they do have a cool graph about it. They've made each of these rats kind of a, it's basically like an elongated pie chart of how each of these rats spend their time, but it's shaped like a, like a hand pie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> rectangle um anyway but divided up into like fractions of how they spend their time um so the point is that most of them spend most of their time eating the first author describes them as like tiny cows um Aww. so they eat plants and they have to eat a lot of plants um because that's what happens when you eat plants and so most of them spend i mean all of them spend most of their time eating plants they also spend a lot of time walking is a big one okay. and standing <laughs> <laughs> just like ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i can't imagine if someone did this with my day i'd be so yeah, embarrassed know, because most of it would too. be sitting <laughs> um i got a targeted ad the other day for like some sort of thing it was for tracking your billable hours so yeah anyway. that's what my dad but does. it was like that's a weird my dad's nice, job oh nice tracking his own billable hours <laughs> no. <laughs> no no he like I'm designs right. the software that that like <laughs> records billable hours oh nice like accurately across time zones yeah oh cool that is neat i just yeah i got an ad for this thing that looked like a d20 and you like flipped it to what you were doing so you'd be like answering emails and then you'd flip it over and be like getting a drink and then you flip it back over when you're back at your desk <laughs> oh that's know. so weird oh i hope i, I never have to do that personally i'm not gonna not get paid to get a drink like, yeah exactly you know, i'm not gonna flip it over <laughs> anyway the point is these rats are not doing that much billable stuff um they spend a little bit of time climbing and what i wanted to call attention to is well they also all spend a little bit of time shaking <laughs> which i love <laughs> same the same um, 
in entering and exiting nest box and grooming. Okay, sorry for just listing all those things. The one that I wanted to get to is that only two of the rats are spending a significant amount of time mating. And this <laughs> one spends about like the time that this one spins mating is about equal to like half of the time it spends walking in a day. <laughs> Which good for it, honestly. <laughs> so, that's what the rats are up to. Um, the other thing next to that that's not as fun to look at, but is still interesting, is that they do they do have partners. Um, like they spend a lot of time together, they groom each other, they eat together, they follow each other around, and they have sex. <laughs> um, and sometimes they fight after they have sex, which is something that mammals do. <laughs> Um, okay. So the thing that's cool about this is that everybody assumed these rats were solitary creatures. Um, so one of the co-authors on this paper, so Bernard Aguanda, um, was an author on that 2011 study where they were like, ah, we think we might've cracked how the rats get poisonous, but we only saw one rat eating the tree. Um, so Bernard Aguanda was an author on that and they're an author on this as well. And... He was like, I have been studying these rats for 10 years and just like wasn't expecting any surprises, but it turns out they <laughs> are probably monogamous or like they demonstrate the behavior of monogamous pair bond animals. Um, and so that's really cool. That's it. This paper talks about basically that. It's called The Secret Social Lives of African Crested Rats. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, they were sneaky about it. People did not see them very often, and when they saw them, they were alone, you know? Um, oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And then also they solved, they answered the question that they set out to answer, which is basically that, like, there is a pattern of behavior of chewing on these trees and then looking to make. Yeah. So, uh -huh. yeah, I think that is probably it. I guess the other thing that Bernardo Guanda says is that now um, is that this information can be used to, like, direct conservation efforts um, mm. and maybe to make their, you know, make the rats happier, basically. Nice. Um, I like they are very cute, but apparently I'm just amazed that there weren't any terrible accidents because you really can't like touch them very much. Like they had to wear leather gloves to make uh -huh. sure they didn't get poisoned. That's it. Wow. So scary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I I'm like glad it. So that's, okay. Yeah. Also, okay, one more thing about the rats is that when they caught adult rats, lots of times they would see younger like rats running around. <laughs> Mirror. I mean, not really. <laughs> they would encounter I think they would also just trap your rats and put them back because they weren't that uh -huh. used to them um but so it seems like the like they do have a nuclear family that kind of hangs out in the same area a lot maybe mm -hmm. is what maybe happens basically rat wise so that's why it's Thanksgiving -y. <laughs> nuclear families coming together <laughs> yes yay happy thanksgiving oh. yeah well i have another thanksgiving story okay i i don't have a transition okay <laughs> sorry thank you again for telling that story it was really good oh, i really like that story <laughs> my story is a thanksgiving related topic that i know nothing about so i'm excited to tell the story it's about football um, nice which people assure me is one of the important parts of the thanksgiving dinner so <laughs> um maybe 
this uh, Thursday, today, I guess, um, depending when you listen to the podcast, you'll be watching a game of the Texans versus the Lions or the football team versus the Cowboys. And nice. <laughs> I don't, is the football team a real thing? Yeah, the Washington football team. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were just lying to me. I thought you no, they renamed themselves. <laughs> Good. I think Washington football team is honestly ideal. It's kind of post-ironic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. Okay, so yeah, so maybe you're watching the football team versus the Cowboys, or maybe you're watching the Ravens versus the Steelers. But either way, what you might see is a perfect spiral pass, <laughs> which is when... I've done a couple of those in my lifetime. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Um, so a spiral pass is um, a beautiful throw, I assume, where the um, the thrower um, uh, <laughs> the ball gets thrown. Oh, you took out your nose. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of spiral pass. Oh no! Well, it's like beautifully described in this um, in this okay. New York Times article. I'm so excited I to, to hear about it. <laughs> um, so. The ball gets thrown and spins perfectly around the long axis of the ball. Then the nose gently dips toward the ground and towards the receiver before being caught. So um, <laughs> I I can picture that, I think. But the person who best describes it in this particular case is um, a New York Times journalist called Kenneth Ching. He wrote a really good New York Times article about the science of spiral football passes. Um, called Why a Perfect Spiral Football Pass Doesn't Break the Laws of Physics. So um, this perfect pass was witnessed, or maybe a few perfect passes, were witnessed by a physicist called Timothy Gay. And he was watching this happen, and he was like, I don't understand the physics of this throw. Um, And the reason is because um, when you throw a ball that is um, rotating quickly around its long axis, then you wouldn't expect the nose to dip down before the rest of the ball at any point. Um, The conservation of angular momentum means that the axis uh, shouldn't spin um, without some kind of force acting on it. And if the force acting it on it is gravity, then the entire ball would drop and the nose, the position of the nose wouldn't change. Like it wouldn't start to dip downwards with the nose facing forward. It would just start to gently descend. And if you're only thinking about air pressure, like the flow of air across the ball, then you would start to see the ball tip upwards because the air pressure would force the nose upwards as it was uh, because of its shape as it was spinning through the air. Mm-hmm. So uh, Timothy Ye was watching this these spiral passes and it was really starting to bother him. Um, so he enlisted two other physicists and apparently they yelled at each other about this project. Um, so the two other physicists were Richard Price and William Moss and William. They yelled? Well, I think they like talked about it very obsessively for a long time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I want to do that. (laughs) I don't want to talk about about it with the physics of football, but I would talk about it. I would talk about something for a lot of time and then eventually write a paper about it if I had the knowledge. Yeah. Um, so Richard Price eventually wrote a paper about this, um, 
in the American Journal of Physics, and it's called The Paradox of the Tight Spiral Pass in American Football Insights from Analytic Approximate Solution. So basically all of this yelling about how a football could possibly do this ended up in some um, in some theories about why this is happening. And the first thing they did was try and imagine a situation where uh, where air pressure like where air was ignored, where they were talking, they were thinking about this project problem as if it was happening in a vacuum. If gravity was the only force acting on this ball, um, then it would just fall to the ground without dipping, as I already mentioned. So they concluded that air pressure is at play. And so then they had to kind of like do a more complicated physics approach, right? Because as soon as you can't look at a problem in a vacuum or a spherical shape or, you know, try and answer this question at its very, in very basic form. Yeah. I was going to say footballs are famously not spheres. Exactly. (laughs) And also you can't study this problem with a spherical football anyway, because then you like negate the problem. (laughs) Yes. So they had to make some new assumptions. The first, of course, is that air pressure is at play and you have to take into account air pressure. And then then they made another assumption, which is that although the ball visibly doesn't have any wobble, like a perfect spiral pass doesn't have it doesn't like wobble to and fro. (laughs) Yeah, it's like my spiral passes have wobble. Although alarmingly drunken. (laughs) Although a a spiral pass that you admire doesn't look like it has wobble in actuality. um, And almost every, I think probably every spiral pass does have some wobble associated with it. So with those new assumptions, they imagined the football as a gyroscope. And um, here's where it gets complicated without visuals. (laughs) But the interesting thing about a gyroscope is that if you spin like a bicycle wheel, which in this case is the gyroscope, and then you attach one end of the bicycle scope to a a string, so it's suspended from one side, then the gyroscope stays constant because of the torque, but it also starts to move around the axis that is connected to the ceiling by its rope. Mm -hmm. And that's called precession. So they just so what they worked that into the calculations that they were or the model that they were creating of this football as it moves through the air and assumed that the football has some amount of precession, not a lot, because if it had a lot of precession, then you would see it. But it has enough precession to create like a kind of aerodynamic uh, twisting motion. And with that model of the, with that simplified model of how a spiral pass goes through the air, they calculated that the movement would average out into a movement of the football nose pointing down towards the ground um, as it flew. So that is how they uh, explained this very weird phenomenon of a spiral pass slowly dipping towards the ground, even though it shouldn't, um, if it was happening in a vacuum. <laughs> Wait, but so what's the what's the equivalent of the string in the bicycle analogy? Why is it? I don't think there's a string equivalent. That it's just that like it. Uh, 
the string equivalent is like the fact that it's being thrown up into the air. So there's something, a force that's keeping it uplifted, okay. right? Gravity's working on it, but hasn't like pulled it down yet. Okay. Um, so the, uh, there's no real equivalent of the string. Yeah. Okay. Um, so all in all, the, the combination of this force of pre- uh, precession, which is the force imposed on a spinning object, 90 degrees um, uh, to the axis of that it's spinning around, combined with the air pressure and the slight wobbling effect that's caused when you throw a football, um, all of that combines to make that twisting motion that forces the nose downwards. And these authors, or specifically William Price, aided by um, Timothy Gay and William Moss, sorry, Richard Price, um, conclu- like wrote this entire physics paper about the physics situation that happens when you throw a s- spiral pass. Oh my gosh, is so, so you're cool. saying <laughs> what makes a perfect spiral pass so perfect is that it's not perfect and it has wobble? Yes! <laughs> what a metaphor. <laughs> Actually, one of the things that the authors, uh, that um, the author of the New York Times article says at the end, uh, Kenneth Chang, Kenneth Chang at the end of his New York Times article says, um, maybe the football players could take some notes. The, the authors of this paper recommend that if you're right-handed if you were a right-handed quarterback, then maybe throw the ball a little bit askew to the left and it will actually go a little bit further because of that um, slight wobble. But then there's a real, there's a balance to be struck between the right amount of wobble to get it to go further, um, but not enough wobble to like completely throw it off track (laughs) Mm -hmm. and make it very hard to catch. Okay. So, yeah. So that is the only, uh, the only football story I will ever do. I hope you enjoyed it because <laughs> I will never talk I about liked football it. again. <laughs> oh my I gosh. think it's very cool that these scientists who like watching football but can't play football were like, "What's up with the physics of this game?" <laughs> and then wrote Maybe a paper they about can't it. Play football? Are they you can't. making assumptions? Okay. I'm not making assumptions because it is actually mentioned explicitly for each of the individual scientists. They all have a story about how they failed at football when they were oh, little, nice. when they were younger. <laughs> oh my gosh. So nice. I'm going to turn my page. Tackle me with your next story. Okay. Um, So I would like to do a disclaimer about this story, which is that it is basically like somebody's personal story, specifically Milt Heflin, um, who worked in mission control um, at Houston for NASA for a long time. Um, And he was interviewed by Eric Berg for Ars Technica. Um, and so this is not, I'm not really bringing anything additional to this story. Like all of the credit on this goes to Eric Berg, but I wanted to share it with you anyway, but you okay. should definitely go read his article at Ars Technica. Um, but this is a story about a very stressful Thanksgiving night, or I think probably technically a Thanksgiving morning um, uh-huh. at NASA. So picture this. <laughs> Here is 1991. What were you doing okay. in 1991? Uh, not being born. <laughs> <laughs> same. Um, same, same. But, okay. I was so, probably just dating, though. November 1991, I was just dating. <laughs> nice. 
congrats. <laughs> um, I was not. Um, but what some people were doing on Thanksgiving <laughs> of 1991 um, were being in space. <laughs> Okay. Sounds much more useful than just dating. Yeah. So basically the Atlantis space shuttle was in orbit and early in the morning um, of Thanksgiving, it was passing over the Southern tip of Africa, which is like a comms, like a, it's an area where uh, mission control in Houston loses comms briefly with the space shuttle. So that's what they were up to. This is entirely a small side story. That also is kind of a spoiler, but just I learned some things about the space shuttle Atlantis because I looked it up to just see if, if anything cool was going on <laughs> with it. Um, and I had some wild stuff about space shuttles because I don't know if do you how many times do you think space shuttles go into space each uh, space, each space shuttle like five. Okay, that is more than I would have guessed. Like, I kind of was like, you make a space shuttle and then you throw it away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What a waste of a perfectly good space shuttle. (laughs) I know, but it seems like you would always want the newest, best space shuttle. I I mean, that's fair. I hadn't really thought about it is the thing. And this really brought to light how much there is to think about <laughs> that never could be because the space shuttle Atlantis was built in built between 1979 and 1985 or like from 1979 to 1985. It flew its first flight in 1985 and it flew its last flight. It's 33rd flight in 2011. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> That's <laughs> Which crazy. Can you imagine? I always feel uncomfortable when I get on a plane and you're like, I'm like, I can tell this plane is from the nineties, you know? <laughs> You just can't imagine getting on a spaceship and being like, <laughs> this plane is from the 70s. Yes, I love this retro vibe. They, uh, okay, so they sold the contracting bid in 1979. They might not have started actual construction until 1980. <laughs> um, walking onto a shuttle and thinking the space shuttle is from the 80s isn't like that much better. Yeah. <laughs> And 207 people did that. This space shuttle had 207 total crew members over time. um, And it did get retired in 2011. And now it lives at the Kennedy Space Center. And you can visit it. Although probably not like right now. Um, (laughs) And the holidays. (laughs) Museums are frequently closed. Um, Thanksgiving time. Not the Sam Noble Museum of Natural History in Oklahoma (laughs) is open on Thanksgiving. (laughs) (laughs) so the point is the Atlantis shuttle was up on one of its 33 missions there were astronauts on it and they were entering a communications blackout where they would not be able to receive any new information and right as this happened so Milt Heflin was the lead flight director at the Houston Mission Control and he received a message from like the Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station, which is in Colorado Springs. That's basically NORAD, which I used to be obsessed with as a child. The like underground mountain thing. Love NORAD. Uh, so Milt Heflin, this lead flight director, was informed by two people working with him that they had received a message from the mountain that said that a decommissioned Turkish satellite was set to collide with the Atlantis <laughs> space shuttle. Oh, no. And they were entering this communications blackout. It was supposed uh-huh. to happen in 15 minutes, and Milt Heflin had no way to com- communicate with them, basically, uh-huh. which is a nightmare. So in this interview with Eric Berg, 
He says, quote, when I think about all my time, I don't remember ever being so nervous or so upset about something as I was then, which is really rough. And yeah, like, so normally the Air Force would give them about 24 hours of warning for like potential debris impacts like this. In 1981, it happened way less frequently than it does now because there was way less crap up in space, which we have talked about on the podcast. Um, That I'm sure about. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just very stressful because he like mentions in here that he, it's like very, very early in the morning um, in Houston. Um, and I guess these astronauts, like he thought these astronauts were asleep and he was worried that they'd never wake up because he had no way to talk to them and tell them that this bad stuff was happening. Um, but the thing is that he was supposed to look at the like big screen that they had that like showed the map of where the space shuttle was in orbit because people kept being like, well, we've pulled a picture of the satellite. You know, you should take a look at it melt. And he was like, I'm upset. I like, I have to go to the bathroom <laughs> and left. But if he had looked at the screen, he would have seen a large picture of a turkey floating over the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it was a practical joke. It was a practical joke. And initially I had it in the show notes as Thanksgiving prank. And then I was like, I'm going to change that. <laughs> oh my God. I want to show oh you a picture God. of the turkey because like the way this Ars Technica article is written, it's clear that it's a prank the whole time. Uh-huh. Um, but when I hit this picture, I still like laughed out loud. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> So that's it. It's a Turkish satellite. (laughs) (laughs) So the point is, Milt Heflin, like, understandably got super upset because he thought all these astronauts were about to die on his watch. And when people tried it with these, like, people who were trying to do a cute joke kept being like, like, look at your screen, Milt. Like, um, he didn't. And then they were basically just in massive trouble, like got super chewed out. And it was worse because this was like a practical joke executed within mission control. But like people outside of mission control heard about it and did not realize it was a joke. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so someone called... Um, this ex-astronaut named Brewster Shaw, who like apparently was really scary, um, who was like in char- he was the deputy manager for the space shuttle program. So somebody called Brewster Shaw at like uh, Brewster Shaw at like three a.m. and we're like, well, a bunch of astronauts are about to die. <laughs> And this guy, Milt Hevlin, like his shift ended at four and Brewster Shaw was supposed to come in at 7 a.m. And so Milt Heflin basically like ran home and wrote up a letter on his electric typewriter, which I really like. My mom had one of those. <laughs> he used to mess with it a lot. Um, and that's it. Like I had to run back in to be there at seven so he could intercept Brewster Shaw and be like, <laughs> it's all fine. You leather. <laughs> like, don't yell at me. Um, I oh liked it because God. from this description of Brewster Shaw, where everyone he's like, I've got to get home. Oh my gosh, like Brewster Shaw's been called. I thought he would be <laughs> just like I would say, hold a picture of 
the man that conjures in your mind. I'm picturing, can I tell you who I'm picturing? I'm picturing, I yeah. can't remember his name, but it's like, it's like a military, like, like, like very square jawed actor. Um, who's like been a general or something in the past, but I can't remember. Oof, yeah, that's basically, I think I kind of picture Val Kilmer um, <laughs> as Iceman, you know, but yeah, definitely somebody big and like military haircut and whatever. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure not to, not that, I don't know, everybody has to fit in boxes, but here's, here's Brewster yeah. Shaw. <laughs> Uh, oh what a sweet nerd (laughs) i know he's very cute he's like the exact kind of attractive that i like wait yeah can you share screen again i want to admire him (laughs) yeah for sure um he just i'm sure he is you know very intimidating he is so cute I yeah i'd like i wouldn't mind being intimidated by him i think (laughs) (laughs) you know um so anyway that's kind of that's kind of this thanksgiving story i'm glad it worked (laughs) um it sounds okay mill heflin like apparently they called him uncle milty around mission control and he was like really sweet and so they thought it would be fun to play like a harmless prank on him and it got Uh really out of hand oh no um (laughs) This story also mentions another practical joke that happened because apparently like early NASA was just really goofy. Um, And apparently there was some person named Chris Kraft who was a flight director for like John Glenn and all those like Apollo people. And so his key lieutenant's name was Gene Krantz. um, And they were doing like two simultaneous activities where Gene Krantz was like doing a mission simulation in like one area um and chris craft was like oh what was he doing i don't know he was doing some other activity in a different room but watching a like watching this simulation on the screen to make sure everything went well and right when chris craft had to hit a button in whatever training he was doing with people they switched out the video of the simulation that Gene Krantz was doing in another room to an actual, like, to a video of a rocket launch. So it looked like Chris Kraft had hit this button and accidentally yeah. sent their, like, in-ship simulation. Like... <laughs> oh, my God. That's brilliant. I know. I know. That's it. It just sounds like... Oh my God. I'm going to read this Ars Technica article immediately. It sounds so good. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. And it sounds like, I don't know if Eric Berg, the author, is friends with Milt Heflin, but he like has him over to his backyard for socially distanced beers for this interview. I don't know. It's really a good article and everyone in it, I feel really bad. Like Milt Heflin refuses to name the people. (laughs) (laughs) who pulled the prank and he says he chewed them out really bad but like it's very relatable I like wish I could think of an example of this because I recognize the feeling of like doing something and being like this will be cute and then being like yes you need to chill out and like notice that it's cute you know Um, (laughs) yeah so yes definitely Nice. This is great. Good story. Good Thanksgiving story specifically. (laughs) Thank you.
<laughs> I was so tickled to find it. So thank you, Eric Berg. Thank you, Mil Teflin. <laughs> so that is that. <laughs> cool. Well, Grayson, what made you happy this week? Ooh, okay. Well, my paper <laughs> got accepted <laughs> with minimal reviews. And also I started building myself a website. Yay. which makes me Yay. feel so savvy that's it which is really cool nice. because I had like had a Wix website which I really liked but they're very expensive they're like I mean I'm sure they're not very expensive for some people but they're very expensive for me mm-hmm. um and now I have a free one that I made through GitHub yes nice. so is it on gracewheeler.com yes it's not good right now oh, okay <laughs> you can look at it but just like it's basically empty <laughs> <laughs> It does say that I'm the host of this podcast nice. and that I'm a graduate student. And that Those I play are the RPGs. only two important things. Those are the yeah. only three important things. <laughs> yeah. Um, but those things made me happy. Uh, yeah. What about you? Um, well, I went home um, uh, a week and a half ago now, um, which I have been honestly feeling very guilty about, um, especially as cases go up. Um, but on the plus side, like this is probably the only time I'm going to be able to go home in a long time. And it's been a long time since I've been home. Hold on. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of being home, that was my brother, (laughs) but yeah, it's been, it's been a while since I've seen them. And, um, we have tried to basically keep all our social things outside and it's been extremely nice to be home even in these very strange conditions and maybe even more in these strange conditions because I'm like in such a weird transitional period so it's very nice to be able to um like yeah spend a very calm two weeks with my family very nice yeah uh it's a that is a rough thing to do for things that made me happy this week though because (laughs) I feel so guilty about it (laughs) um but, but yeah. I'm glad you're getting to spend time with your family. Yeah, especially before a very big move, a very big, scary move. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, next week I'll be, or I guess in two weeks, I'll be back in Boulder. So, I'll be recording in person again. Nice. Yay. Yay. I can't wait. <laughs> That's it for us this week. Thanks to everybody who has rated or reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> if you have a free minute, please consider rating us or writing us a review. It might help us get sponsored in the future, and it makes us feel special. Join us in two weeks for another science chat, but until then, remember, you're significant. Make sure your science is too. This podcast was written and produced by me, Allison Gilchrist, and my co-host, Grayson Wheeler. Our theme music is If I Had a Chicken by Kevin McLeod. Go to sciencebuffs.org to read the Science Buffs blog or find out more about the podcast at buffstalkscience.com. You can also follow us at Science Buffs on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can follow Buffs Talk Sci on Twitter for podcast-specific news. Bye. Bye.